0: Hi everyone. I'm Tish Conlan and here's another episode of Tish Talk. I'm really excited to have a repeat guest. I have a Canadian who is a historical expert and um, he's modest, but I really truly have uh, been thrilled to have uh, stumbled upon Matthew Errett. He's editor in chief of Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at the America University in Moscow, author of the Untold History of Canada book, which I purchased and series and Clash of two Americas. In 2019, he co-founded the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. I think, was that with your wife, Matthew? Yeah, Cynthia Chung, that's right. Okay, great. Well, welcome. Great to see you again today. How are you?
1: Oh, it's great being back, Tish. I'm, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Oh, well, I got so much positive feedback from our last podcast. And a lot of people wanted to hear more about Canadian history. So for those of you who are listening today, um, and if you haven't listened to our first podcast together, please um, go check that out. We talked about uh, Diefenbaker um, and the Bill of Rights and why um, the having those unalienable un- rights is more powerful than the Charm of uh, Freedom and Rights. We talked about World War I and Two. We had a little disagreement about some of the, the, the players in those uh, fields, but I, I defer to Matthew. He probably has a lot more information than me and uh, has researched these topics more Far more thoroughly, um, and uh, certainly uh, today we're going to cover a little more Canadian history. And I think it'd be great to start with, um, well, wherever you want to start, Matthew. But I know people want to hear about the Trudeau's and then, you know how they how they've uh, disrupted Canada and how they rose to power.
1: That's a, that's a good a spot as any to to jump into such a conversation, I think. And uh, sure, we can do it that way. Uh, so I, I think many people <clears throat> have. Uh, for those who were a little bit confused about what Justin was, let's say back in 2014, 15, as this you know GQ pretty boy that's been that was you know given to the the masses of Canadians to uh, to reminisce over, you know, because ultimately <clears throat> there there was a sort of predictive programming function to the choice and selection and utilization of this poor schmuck uh, Justin, who really there's not much there, you know, like it, it's it's somewhat painful to listen to the guy. Uh, squeak out words that are put into his head from teleprompters and handlers. Um, he, there's, there's not a lot of self-criticism, self-examination. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, and <clears throat> ultimately, the, when I said predictive programming and a sort of form of there's something to do in hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming with anchoring. And there are certain warm, fuzzy emotions embedded in the zeitgeist, of, especially Canadians that have been put there carefully uh, because the name Trudeau. That invokes certain ideas of, you know, the, the Lincoln of Canada, the man who kept Canada whole from this separatist insurgents of those dark years of the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, th- there's a certain like warm, fuzzy nationalism, a, a feeling of Whoa. pride. Uh, that, that was...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe anyone would have that at this day and age.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I, mean, I think they've been broken from that spell. Especially oh, over good. the last two two and a half years or so, but that was originally what was invoked to get people to accept him as the new, you know, uh, prince yes. um, of the of the little dynasty. But what the hell was it that he just stepped into? What and what did the Trudeau clan represent? And I think it's a useful thing as an exercise, which does get into the substance of volumes three and four of my Untold History of Canada book series, which has to do a lot with well, what was Pierre originally? Because his son is sort of like a shallower, dumber version of Pierre, who was himself a shallow, um, when you look at his personality, he was a shallow personality type, but he was much more smart, much yes. more aware of what he was a part of.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas Justin, they would never allow it to be put into a, a situation where it wasn't 100% of a controlled environment, kind of like Biden. You know, yes. They wouldn't permit that. Whereas Pierre Elliott Trudeau, because of his Jesuit... Uh, training his London School of Economics. You know, this guy This guy was trained by some of the best uh, mm-hmm. social engineers and grand strategists. So they would trust him to go into hostile environments and handle himself pretty well. And he did.
0: Alone. Um, yes.
1: Alone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the thing is, he was a leading Fabian Society operative. Uh, that's an important component. So what is the Fabian Society? Well, yes, to understand I- Canadian history especially the 20th century you wouldn't get far if you didn't understand two british controlled think tanks that were created at the end of the uh, the 19th century one of them was the fabian society um led by a certain um misanthropic nominally socialists like Beatrice and Sidney Webb uh George Bernard Shaw was a leading figure um really? Thomas Huxley Oh yeah 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 um also a, a a devout eugenicist he really you know these, these people were all devout eugenicists. HG Wells was another leading figure uh, within the Fabian society Bertrand Russell uh, later on Lord, Lord Maynard Keynes uh, all Fabians uh, they started a school called the London School of Economics that was purely a Trudeau school. Um, they started a party political party called the Labour Party of Britain and uh, they began interfacing very much with another think tank that was called the Roundtable Movement. It was set up a little bit later under the, uh, when? the the financial acquisitions of a rapacious, another eugenicist, as these British grad strategists all tend to be religiously eugenics minded, big into population control and weeding out the unfit, very elitist, nasty thinking, um, masquerading as science. And this is when Cecil would Rhodes,
0: this so. When would this all be? When are we talking now? Well,
1: the uh, the Fabian Society was created in 1878. The uh, the Roundtable Movement was created in 1902. Um, it operated. The Roundtable operated out of uh, Oxford, and it both of them basically cr- pioneered new techniques of looking for talent around the British Commonwealth or the the British Empire, providing um, a special form of educational experience to said young talent that would receive. Uh, grants or scholarships to be processed and and indoctrinated in the halls of Oxford to become the upper-level managers of the system. These are the Rhodes Scholarship programs that that people like Christia Freeland or Bob Ray or there's many, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of high-level, very dangerous Rhodes Scholars peppering the Canadian landscape in media, private, and especially public sector throughout, throughout the 20th century. This is what undermined people like Anything good that John Diefenbaker tried to do that was sabotaged was sabotaged because of specifically these Rhodes Scholars and these, yeah, um, yeah and these Fabians operating in, and they were always working together. They, they interfaced very, very, very much um, together. So in Canada, the Roundtable Movement found its leader, um, especially in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, in the form of a fellow named Vincent Massey. He was the first Canadian governor general born, born from Canada. Um, He was a protege of Alfred Milner. Milner was a leading controller of the Roundtable movement after Cecil Rhodes had died. Um, And he, he set up in Canada, the Canadian branch of this thing was called the the Canadian Institute for International Affairs. It was set up in 1928. The American branch was, was called the council on foreign relations that was set up earlier in 1921. And the, the mothership, the control center of all of this was the British uh, Royal Institute for International Affairs, aka Chatham House, that was set up in 1919 as part of the Versailles Treaty Agreements that also set up the League of Nations, which was authored and, and shaped by these figures like Milner and Leo Amory and Lionel Curtis and Philip Kerr, who were all, uh, they sort of cut their teeth as misanthropic sociopaths managing the concentration camps of the Boer Wars uh, where the Dutch Transvaal Republic uh, rebellion was put down uh, using a targeted killing of children, women, wives, uh, poisoning of water systems. It was a, it was a terrible thing. But all of these guys, that's how they be- that's how they became men <laughs> and, oh, wow. and really developed their qualifications to be like you know managers of the world system. So they they were creating the League of Nations and this the the Roundtable Institutes, the uh, Royal Institutes for International Affairs. At the same time, as two parts of the same operation to create a, what was it? Well, the League of Nations was supposed to be the one world government, the thing that would get rid of nation states. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, the the League of Nations failed because you had still nationalist resistance within Canada, within the United States. Um, You know, you had the Laurier liberals who were ardently nationalist and refused to give up and sacrifice Canada's sovereignty in the 1920s. On some altar, um, the covenant also of the League of Nations called for a supranational executive, unelected, that would control all the military functions of the nations of the world. It would have a collective security agreement where, if any member got in a fight, everybody would be obliged to get into that fight. This, if that r- rings a bell, this is yes. what was revived with the creation of NATO, NATO. in 1949. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Right. And the, the idea was a, a, an international, a supranational banking uh, system would be brought, in, brought online to replace the functions of nations that had formerly had the idea that they could control their own economic destiny. Could, so could we take to get back to... Little,
0: kid, yeah, could we take a bit of a, uh, just a little bit to highlight Laurier? Because um, I think it's good to highlight some of these, you know, people that defied or resisted the one world uh, agenda. And Laurier, can you give a little bit of background on him? Because a lot of people are getting wrong information. Look at what they did at Ryerson now. They, they you know they're taking down statues of people. Um yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of this. Uh so what could you tell people who really aren't that uh informed on Canadian history about Laurier? He was a good guy, uh oh, although, yeah. Uh, very good, uh cared about Canadians and resisted this uh this march with the League of Nations towards the one world government. Any other tidbits that might be interesting? Everyone's looking for trivia and facts well, on people.
1: Well, here's the thing, it, Laurier himself, um was ousted. He was a prime minister who was ousted in a coup. I, 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 uh, I published on my on my Canadian Patriot website a wonderful study um, from the University of, so, a young historian from the University of Ottawa who did great research on this. Um, he was ousted in a coup d'etat in 1911 that was organized by the Masonic Orangemen of Ontario, which at the time had, I think, most men over the age of 30. I think like half of the, the Ontarian population were these Masonic orange men from the orange orders, as well as the round table movement um, that together worked with some traders in Quebec to basically undermine and, and destroy Laurier's efforts to establish something very important that would have cut Canada free of many of the controls by the city of London. I'll, I won't say what that is yet. Now, Laurier himself, he was a Republican. He was part of a grouping in Quebec uh, before Confederation called Les Rouges. They were ardently pro-Lincoln Republicans who were anti-British empire. Um, in circles, people like Elo David, others, they had a, a newspaper called the, the L'Union Nationale. That was the, the name of the political party that was later on created um, under Maurice Duplessis and Daniel Johnson Sr., which also was very much more, very much, Anti-British imperial and pro-industrial progress, which is why they are so demonized today. As if, like for Quebec was who are baby boomers, they have been brainwashed into thinking that the days of the Union Nationale government of Quebec was like a dark age of ignorance and squalor. And it's like when you actually look at it, that was the greatest rates of industrial progress that we had ever seen. And we've been we've been lied to. But all that to say, Laurier was a part of that network when confederation. Uh, became a reality, which was never an honest thing. And, and we talked about that our last episode uh, in our last chat. Yeah. The, the British North America Act that created confederation. It was a British geopolitical project. That, one of two. The British had two confederacy operations to destroy America's, the, the experience of 1776 and Lincoln's Union. One of those confederacy projects, which, which was the British Southern Confederacy operation, failed, that we all know of. The Northern Confederacy Confederacy operation, however, succeeded. That was the British success. And the entirety of the the Civil War, throughout that entire time, Montreal, Halifax, and Toronto were housing British uh, Confederate uh, intelligence operations and headquarters that were running, I mean, terrorist operations against Lincoln from the north, from Canada, we were John Wilkes Booth was trained, was provided his his money and instructions uh, to carry out the hit that he later on did in for five weeks while he was up in Montreal. And he writes about that in his journal.
0: Really? Um, wow, oh yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this whole thing, right, there was this big race over what would be the character of Canada if Lincoln succeeded in saving the union. Would the, the pro Lincoln statesman of Canada uh, establish an independent, genuine, authentic, sovereign nation of Canada, or would the traitors who are loyal to the British way of, of managing the world, would they be the ones who would succeed and keep Canada under the clutches of British British grand strategy, which unfortunately is what happened. Yes. And we became sort of a wedge a wedge to be used to break things like the, the dangerous um, development of the Russia-US relationship, which together they had come very close at various times of joining hands, especially via British Columbia, Alaska. That's why the, the the Russians sold Alaska to the Americans was to build rail and telegraph lines to, to economically unite. So Canada, British, the the British monarchy of Canada, as as a crown institution, was used to always keep that uh, buffer.
0: Really, really? that's yeah. something I didn't know at all.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bit weird. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, d- despite that, you had uh, Laurier who did rise to a position of high power. Um, and, and he used his time, he was a very long-standing uh, prime minister, and he used his time to, to acquire um, for the first time national controls over Canada's military, especially the Navy. Um, he, and he did what he could. I mean, it was a very dangerous time to be anti- an anti-British statesman in that world. If you think about the amount of assassinations of Garfield, McKinley, Alexander the First, Alexander the Second, uh, Gabriel Haniteau. There's like a list of like 30 high-level assassinations between 1880 and 1915. Wow. Um, it was very dangerous. So he had to walk a very careful path to stay alive and be effective. So it was somewhat slower going, but he wrote uh about how he envisioned a Canada of 60 million with full full electrification, uh railways, uh, everything. He had a very strong bold vision of where he saw Canada going. Um now he he had cultivated a network of trusted advisors and collaborators among whom included people like uh, Oscar Skelton OD Skelton who became his uh, top chief advisor he he was the the, the man who was controlling the uh, the foreign office the the external affairs uh, office of canada for a long time who and and people like Chubby Power uh, there there was a, a variety of them um <clears throat> they were Always the ones to be on the front lines. Even after Laurier dies, um, they come to power again, and they are fighting the Imperial Union idea of creating a, a, a British federation glo- globally of all of the Anglo-Saxon nations, plus a, a reac- reacquired USA, which was what the Round Table was created to do: was was repossess the belligerent colony and reabsorb it back under what became known as the Five Eyes. That's the that's the heart of the Five Eyes.
0: Okay, um, really? so they okay. were. Yeah.
1: Yeah, things like the NSA were created as as the American branch of the Five Eyes with the GCHQ, the Canadian uh, branch was set up uh, accordingly. But it was all done to reacquire intelligence controls and military and other controls of the USA under a British command structure, but not British Parliament. British, of course, we're talking the real seat of power. Um, So the Laurier Liberals came back into play and worked with their compatriots in America, people like Warren Harding, again assassinated American president. They say poisoned uh by by be eating bad oysters, but it's like, I'm sorry, yeah. if you look at what yeah. this guy was doing, yeah. ah, no, there, there's something shady there, no autopsy. But and it, we were working as,
0: with, as a side note, I just want to ask you this because do you think now that they're they, they decide instead of the uh, actual assassination they they've kind of resorted to a character assassination it seems easier with the media with that as a weapon for a lot of these people preferred or, that yeah they've always preferred that because you you don't hear yeah. about there are some assassinations look what happened to the japanese um
1: update yeah. yes
0: recently but do you think now there's more of this uh, incredible power with the media to slander people? Um, just as a side note, and then I just wanted to ask your oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They 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 prefer to avoid making martyrs wherever possible, and that's right. always the messy side. Like the oligarchy, I've 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 always said this. You know, they 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 have no problem killing millions of people, but they really prefer not having to kill individuals because right. the individual shows their own weakness. Because what is it about a particular individual that could cause um an insecurity in the power structures of the oligarchy such that they have to kill an individual. That's it makes people think a little bit too much about well, what are they doing? <laughs> what is Martin right. Luther King Jr. doing, right? <laughs> right? Uh what is Gandhi doing? What is what is Laurier <laughs> yeah. doing? Um
0: yeah. oh, fascinating. Okay. So when did yeah. Laurier um when was his last term? And I know we were talking about nineteen eleven. So not so that's a long. So was there anyone else of his magnitude as a patriot or nationalist that you could?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you had on the federal level. It's rarer. Um, I think With he was Diefen among Baker. the strong. Yeah, um? he was the.
0: Strongest. Yeah, we have talked about
1: Ethan Baker quite a bit. I would say people like Clarence Decker or Howe, who was another leading uh, pro-industrial liberal um, of a very different type than we saw after, you know, Elliott Trudeau, um, led a Fabian society takeover of the liberal party, because what it was, it was like a host. So the, the, the party is just like a host at different times. You'll find like, you know, the democratic party of John F. Kennedy, very different democratic party than the thing we know we, we look at today. Right. Yes. So the,
0: the,
1: the way the oligarchy works is they, it's like a virus taking over a, a, a healthy blood cell or a healthy cell. Right? I it love that. On.
0: Yeah, I love yeah. that analogy because that's that yeah. helps people understand that it's not about left and right because they can they can switch. I mean, the Republicans yeah. have some some real evil players, and and so do the Democrats, as we know. But it wasn't always that way. The Liberals had some real pro freedom nationalists. Certainly not yeah. that way now. It's the opposite. So yeah, exactly. it's a virus. <laughs> it's just like yeah, a- you look. Yeah. it helps
1: so much more to appreciate things without the, the, the foot, like the, the sports game problem of like trying to look at like, well, what team are you on? And
0: that doesn't yeah. work. Or what
1: like ideology are you? And it's like, that doesn't work either because sometimes ideologies yeah. can be used for good or for bad. It's like a tool, you know? Um,
0: exactly. So
1: <clears throat> the the thing with um, the, the liberal party of Trudeau, it was, it basically is the Fabian society, the Fabian society in Canada, was created by five Rhodes scholars, F.R. Scott being one of them, David Lewis. Uh, there was, a, I'm forgetting some of the names all of a sudden, but there were five Rhodes scholars uh, that created in 1931 amidst the Great Depression, the Canadian Fabian Society. Its name was the League for Social Reconstruction. The political branch or party that was created out of that was called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF. That was led by a, later on a fellow named Tommy Douglas. Um, Right. Again, actually seems like a nice guy, but actually a eugenicist. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And uh, his whole like it, it makes you question why he wanted universal health care. What was the practical value? Did he actually care about providing high quality care for everybody? Or was there something else going on?
0: Oh, um, can you just give a little bit more, uh, people are probably going, what does he mean by that? Um, because I have experienced such atrocious, I don't even want to go into a hospital in Canada. Uh, it's terrifying <laughs> to even consider it.
1: Okay.
0: Just a quickie on, uh, on him. Yeah, lives. and then I'm going to vector
1: back into your question of the good Canadians. Yeah, but, and then um, Trudeau,
0: then right on to Trudeau after, and that. then back <laughs> so, back to Trudeau, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we
1: got the vein, we got the we got the. Yeah, we're threat. all set,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're good. Um, so I'm not personally, as a disclaimer, I am not intrinsically against universal healthcare. Okay, yeah, I'm not against are, it. In, in no, exactly. Yeah. I
0: say if that you just like, yeah. System, yeah, exactly. yeah, if, if you have an honest system, yeah, uh, exactly.
1: If you have an honest type of of law and 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 a representative system of government that actually does its job properly then having the power to provide high quality, basic universal needs to people without expecting them to pay out of their, their pocket, fine, okay. Yes.
0: And I want to <laughs> sure. go further. Everybody deserves healthcare for free. I yeah. mean- Yeah, it's it, like it, a it,
1: human it, right, right?
0: It, yeah, it's a human, basic human right. But what what ha- has happened to it is the interesting point that people might be interested under is Tommy Douglas. And the, under- Well, the- yeah,
1: yeah. And and it's like when, it, when people who are, when eugenicists, And globalists start promoting something that seems to be good on this, like seems to be good. You got to ask, well, why do they want that type of centralized command structure to deploy and distribute the healthcare resources? Um, Is there perhaps another reason behind their nice words that might exist, unfortunately? And yes, there is um so
0: toxic drugs are being uh promoted over safe and effective money for pharma can be um prioritized over human health and and got it i listened recently even at a conference of the incredible toxicity of remdesivir which has been used um and still being used in a lot of hospitals that people come in with chronic covid Mm. And it's 25% uh, kidney failure. So unbelievably toxic and dangerous should never been used. And doctors presenting all this data on all these safe treatments that unfortunately aren't patented. So they're just not profitable to big pharma. so there you see that this public um, private partnership is so destructive to human health right there. And that's exactly what they're doing is they're undermining human health for profits Terrible. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and and the way that these administrators, these who are Malthusian, they eugenic, their their religion is a pseudoscience of eugenics and Malthusianism, which are pretty much two sides of the same thing. It's so-called science, sciences of population control, managing scarcity, managing this. That's basically it. They can only operate in a world of scarcity and what's called the the presumption of the law of diminishing returns as a, a universal constant. this The assumption being around that, that theory that was generated by a British East India con- economy hack, not even a real economist, he was a political <laughs> operative, uh, was David Ricardo and um, and John Stuart Mill, both of them. Okay. And the law of diminishing returns is a, is a presumption that is not proven. It is anti-scientific, but it, it forces the mind who accepts it to assume that the system that they are operating within over time must always have less resources to distribute to the growing population, right? And they are all—they really? be- all believe in the Malthusian mathematical population law, which is that population, human populations grow geometrically, food grows arithmetically, resources cannot replenish, and thus you always get greater tension, right? Uh, you, there's no such thing as genuine abundance in their worldview. They can, and and with that tension social engineers can induce dumb people to stay dumb they can one make people dumb yes take education then get them to think well look because you're dumb and because there's not enough to go around who are we going to kill off first right triage right and, the, and they, they 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 condition kids early on and even in high school around scenarios that are that are like this like you know you've got enough you're, you're, you're on a desert island with other shipwrecked survivors. There's seven of you. There's enough food for five of you. Who are you uh, based on the characteristics that we describe of each of the seven people, who are you going to eat or who are you going to kill, right?
0: Jeez. And you, yeah. These are
1: philosophy exercises, but it dehumanizes kids so that they they don't have the, the, the psycho-spiritual uh, constitution inside of themselves to then properly... Um, poke holes or, or refute yes. such argumentation in the real world that they then go into and they think, oh, all we can do is, is adapt to scarcity.
0: Absolutely. So, it, 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 I mean, I know we've we've gone off on a tangent here, but it's yeah. so important, particularly we see this playing out all over the world with this scarcity model and with this uh, incredibly corrupt universal health system uh, that's that's causing unprecedented harm. And when you speak to that particular subject, you look at the data on suicides. And now, even in Canada, we have what have made medically assisted uh, suicide. I, I was shocked and appalled when I saw the numbers. And you can uh, apparently in Canada, a minor, uh, even a young person can get uh, assisted suicide without parental consent now. I mean, really, yeah, they what time
1: a mature uh, minor, eh? Like, and they—what does that mean? Even like,
0: uh, uh, like you're a twelve-year-old
1: who likes to smoke. Like, what, what? is? What? What is a mature minor? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> it, it, when they have all these oxymorons, it's kind of like social distancing. I mean, exactly—you right. know, two opposites. They're putting all these words that don't mean anything together, and people right. are just lapping it up. But anyway, so back to Tommy Douglas. So, just, uh, just as a quickie on—you know—what w- was the influence of him implementing that from a negative standpoint? And well,
1: that early early on the the party itself the league for social reconstruction the ccf uh which became it went through a name change in 1960 it became called it, it turned into the ndp party um the the or in the when they were set up it they were set up amidst the great depression in order to pr- promote the scientific management of society under a um a new breed of post democratic controls so you there was like nominally the you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you could read their their constitution, their manifesto, um, and they they say words like democracy, but what they're really saying is they allow for local mini demo- like democratic uh, functions on the local mini level. And so people can have the illusion of choice, but when it comes to like, what is their nation doing, what is the system doing that they're a part of, that they can have no say on. So people can decide, you know, do you, do you want to vote on whether you have a stop sign? or whatever locally, you know, but it'd be a very divided to to be better to be conquered type of society. Now they were also, the great depression was artificially created by a controlled demolition of the financial system. And that idea was to shut down the industrial agricultural productive base of society to justify an embrace of both fascism as the economic solution politically, as well as eugenics as the medical scientific new science or new religion For the the society to be uh, controlled by, which is like a neo-Darwinianism. It's sort of like pre-transhumanism. All of the transhumanists or the people who created transhumanism after World War II, like Julian Huxley, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin in the 1940s and 50s, they were all leading eugenicists. So again, the idea was centralize the command structure, centralize as much as you can so that nation states become instruments for the enslavement and elimination of the unfit. By uh, a command structure which was not even located in Canada, and so inversely, does that mean that, like the the institutions of the nation state are themselves bad? No, they're like oh, it's a it's a an instrument. It's like a technology a, a nation is kind of like a technology. Uh, a technology in that sense, it has you know many moving parts. They have to work together for a purpose, for a whole. Obviously, with a nation state, the the. Right. The purpose is the, the well being of the people and the activation of the creative freedoms and, and creative powers of the individual people who make up the citizens of the society. That's like a properly functioning machine of government. And national banking, healthcare uh, policy, other things should all flow from that reality. And when you look at people like Clarence Decatur Howe and the Laurier liberals that were working with him, many of whom, in fact, actually. Many of whom died in 1940, which is. Oh, a, another seriously? Yeah, there was like a whole wave of like four Laurier liberals who were all combating the, the Rhodes Scholar takeover of the Canadian uh, External Affairs Office. They were all eliminated uh, in the same year um, as Canada was pulled into World War II. Side note. So if you look at what they were doing, they wanted to use these powers for the good. Unfortunately, these powers can also be used for the bad. Now, the problem that we have today is because we have seen the powers. Most Canadians and Americans have seen these powers of government used for bad purposes. We have made the mistake, I think, of blaming the the, the governments themselves, say, assuming that if we just got rid of, you know, central, yeah, yeah, if we if we just get rid of the, the 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 central powers of government, we'll all have freedom and everything will be good. And I think that's a bit of a a red, like, um, uh, a trick we have fallen for a trick. Um, which so? gets, well, this gets at the question of, because we ultimately end up agreeing with the very oligarchy that wants to get rid of the powers of the sovereign nation state as a basis for, um,
0: right. One world powers. government. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They want one world government. So they, they've been working for decades and decades to destroy the means of the sovereign nation state to exert any positive influence over the economic destinies of a people, which is what NAFTA was all about, or the, the Euro system was created in the same time in order to handicap, to destroy legally the right of any sovereign nation to use a national bank to create productive credit or to use protectionism to, to favor the, the development of local industries in, and, and stop the flooding of cheap goods from abroad. That's, that's like, you, without those things, you can't have a proper nation state, but they've been working to, to cripple that for a long time.
0: Could I so interject here? This is a no. quick question because I know a lot of conservatives are um, you know, they 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 like the 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 concept free market economy. It sounds like an entrepreneur capitalism, but then the word protectionism seems to, you know, drum up these visions of um limitations for the flow of goods. Like in Canada, I know it's hard for goods to flow across provinces because some of the protectionism. And I know um, but then oppositely, I know Quebec. Um, um, dairy farmers, they claim they really need the protections to compete. Can you comment on that before we move on? Just to clarify yes, for people. That's a,
1: such an important point, Tish. Such an important oh, point. God. I love it. Um, yeah, look, and this gets at the question of what was Laurier doing? Because yeah rate. It-
0: we need to it's understand like, these things really at a deep level so we can fix them, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's like free trade is not a bad thing intrinsically and protectionism isn't a good thing intrinsically. There's times when it's it's what is your intention when you use these tools? They're just tools.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's like, well, we've had 40 years of globalization, global free markets, free trade, like no protectionism under the World World Trade Organization. Did that increase the trade productivity output? Did any of that increase? No, not at all. Like we've we've undermined and destroyed our own powers of product production consistently, while centralizing uh, controls over everything in the hands of fewer and fewer actual private interests that are very much tied to the same bankers that took over our government over the dead bodies of John F. Kennedy and his yeah. brother. Right. So it's like maybe that was the bad use of free trade. Now. Canada, as you said, does not have free trade amongst the provinces. That's insane. Yeah,
0: have, it is. It, that's going to stop. Exactly. We're harming yeah. our own country. Um,
1: you know. <laughs> no, yeah, that doesn't work. Uh, you, to be a country, you need to have uh, a, a common flow of good. You, we're all in it together. as Can, Whether you're a Canadian in, in Vancouver or Alberta or Edmonton or, or Windsor, whatever, you're you're a Canadian and you have your common interest, so of course, of course, you should enjoy free trade amongst the provinces. Of course, um,
0: yeah. and, and with that... our regulations, uh, and then we'll move on. But I just wanted to say, some people might not be aware of this: a nurse who's fully qualified and got a degree in Ontario can't work in another province.
1: I you mean, what again, the hell is that? Eh?
0: They're having foreign nurses come in to take their jobs over. It's insane. So
1: it's yeah. insane. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and, and this then gets to the question of Laurier, because why was Laurier ousted? OK, here's a good a good case. Yeah, study.
0: perfect. He was perfect.
1: ousted because he was in the in the midst of, of finalizing a bill that had passed the Senate and the House of Commons that he was about to sign off on. He'd been fighting for years to get this thing through. And it was called um, um, it, it was it was the uh, uh, basically a. a the exact Ugh. wording I'm just forgetting all of a sudden, it's reciprocity treaty. So oh. it, was, it was it was to create a free trade zone for North America, specifically the USA and Canada.
0: OK, now,
1: now we've all seen how much bad happens under NAFTA when that sort of thing yeah. happens. Right, right. So you'd like be well, that sounds like a terrible idea. Thank God he was ousted.
0: <laughs> it's getting confusing happening? now. I have to admit, NAFTA was bad. North, Canada and U.S. good. Yeah. Okay. But in 1911,
1: it was a different thing. So why was it different? Well, the difference was that the 1911 USA was a very different beast from the post-Kennedy USA that we we see has done so much damage to the world and to its own people. Back yeah. then, America was still much more under the the influence of its pro its 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 pro industrial pro-science eth- uh, ethic that was not yet imperial. There was no Anglo-American special relationship to try to, you know, control the world under a Pax Americana. That wasn't there yet. So mm-hmm. America was still being influenced by Lincoln, McKinley, Garfield traditions. And um,
0: much more positive, was positive, it uh, was much,
1: it was much more based on, on the idea that capital and banking must always obey the increase of the powers of production that sustains human life. And if you do the opposite, if you're making money with debts or speculating without creating anything, so then you're doing something wrong, that's, that's illegal and bad. So under that type of configuration, this is also again, before the Federal Reserve was created, another very important point. Yes. Having the US and Canada together with a protective tariff that would, right. that would cut off the, the British dumping of cheap goods that would always undercut the ability for new oh, industrial centers from, from ever emerging in Canada. Yes. Um, that was actually good. And it would allow for, well, the biggest drivers of investment into the real long-term uh, projects that can- Canadians needed right. was coming from American industrialist entrepreneurs who were then helping in, and creating co-thinkers in Canada. Now that was un- unacceptable because Alfred Milner, came to Canada in 1909, the head of the roundtable movement, and he did a study with another guy named Halford Mackinder uh, together. Um, Halford Mackinder was a leading Fabian. He was the, f- the founder of modern geopolitics. Kissinger, Brzezinski, all of their thinking is rooted in Halford Mackinder uh, and his thoughts on how to, how to control scarcity and to create artificial wars for scarcity for the benefit of an elite. So they both came to Canada. And Milner, after this study on the, the problem of Canada, which was he looked at three dominant possible scenarios for the future. Number one scenario was greater integration of Canada into a British-controlled world government. And he said that, unfortunately, is not likely right now. That's going to take time. Number two is greater cooperation and integration with the U.S. uh, free enterprise system. That is the greatest threat to the British empire, and we must do everything to stop that one from happening. The third one, he said, well, there's a, a bumptious a quality of nationalism within the Canadians, especially the young ones who are wonderfully ignorant to the long waves of history. And he says that wonderfully ignorant to the long waves of history, shaping them that has use. We, we should amplify that to create a new type of nationalism. That's much more synthetic and much more controlled by us. And that's what they put all the resources in. And that's what people like, you know, Pearson, who who is the personal advisor to Vincent Massey, uh, create, they create a Canadian system of honors, a Canadian, like the Order of Canada, they create a Canadian national flag, Canadian anthem, they start creating a bunch of Canadian things, and they're all tied to the Rhodes Scholarship groupings and Fabians, really? in order to give us a false sense that, okay, we're not American, our identities is we're not American. We sound, you know, we, 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 we sound, we speak English. We sound kind of like Americans, but we're our identities. We must not be American. And, um, and they just amplified that and it amplified that. And
0: you know, the um, anti-American sentiment, I mean, you know, it, a, it's a, strong, yeah, incredibly strong.
1: But then the problem was after JFK and his brother dies, America is then increasingly taken under the control of those very same Rhodes scholars, but the, the American variants of them, who are interfacing always with the Canadian variants. Um, people like George McGee, who's one of the main architects of the Vietnam war and the Korean wars road scholar. Um, there's so many of them. And so America starts actually acting like this evil monolithic imperial beast, which oh. then re, it's like the pig, Pygmalion effect, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, look all that we've been saying, thank God we're not working with them. Thank God we've cut ourselves off of them. And so you get this, um, Uh, Again, Pygmalion effect. And then NAFTA, we just seen what what destruction that did, both for Canadians as well as Americans, as well as Mexicans. Nobody really benefited by NAFTA. The only people who benefited were the supranational banking institutions who control the levers of production from above. Um, On you, this
0: point, I wanted to yeah. ask you a quick question. A lot of people are interested with Nixon, um, and I know we're getting back up to Trudeau. So hopefully this will give a, a bridge with uh, mm. with what happened with the money system, because that affects everything. When Nixon took um, money off the gold standard and made it the petrodollar, how did that affect Canada and the U.S.'s position and their connection to 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 Britain. I mean, and, and how did Britain find that? Was that a was that a, a move a move against imperialism when that happened? And how did that affect Canada? Or w- w- give us a little bit of a historical perspective there. What what did that cause to happen and the ripples there? Mm,
1: good another good question. Um well that was a banking coup in my assessments, which involved dismantling what was once one of the best safeguards against economic speculation and economic warfare against nation states, which has always been for hundreds of years, a tool of the city of London was you, you gamble and you, you gamble with currencies, you gamble with commodities in order to create bubbles where there formerly was, were viable economies that could then be targeted um, to destroy the ability of nations that you want to destroy to stand on their own two feet. Now, under the pre nineteen seventy one system that was established by Bret at Bretton Woods was it was a flawed system, but at the very least it had a, an important idea of what's called fixed exchange rates and parity pricing. So, in the fixed exchange rate system, it was based upon okay, we know relatively what the value of you know it was based on everybody has to have and settle their their balance of payments in U.S. dollars because the U.S. came out as the strongest currency after World War II. Now with, when the exchange rates were fixed and nominally it was to the price of gold at a stupid price from 1933, that was yeah, irrational. But the point we, at the very least, what was good about that is that it gave a certain set of guarantees that we know that within two, three, three years, four years, five years, the relative value so that we're not going into total uncertainty. Um, it The value of the dollar is not going to be based upon the value of, let's say, the petro petrodollar mm-hmm. of like what a barrel of oil is going to be based on What speculators want to spend on the spot markets or futures markets, which is highly volatile. The speculator doesn't care about the oil. They don't care about industrial production. They care about maximizing money with money, with other people's money. So that became a highly volatile system when the currency was floated onto the floating exchange rates. It became basically whatever speculators want to pay for your currency a commodity or especially oil determined the price of your, your currency making it very difficult to plan ahead. All of a sudden, you couldn't think more than maybe a year or two in the future because you don't know what Mm -hmm. the unstable markets are going to be. On the other hand, um, it increasingly, this was done as part of a broader sweeping set of major reforms in 1971. And this is again, George Schultz, who is a high level Bilderberger operative working closely with Kissinger. I don't think Nixon understood what he was doing half the time. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't blame Nixon for half of the bad things that he did. Yeah, like Reagan. Now Reagan's like a sympathetic character or, or Diefenbaker, right? They're all kind of the similar personality types. They didn't understand the environment they were in, but they're not bad people, but they receive a lot of hate because bad things happened while they were there, but they didn't right. just didn't know what the Vipers were. So okay. <clears throat> all that to say. When you had 1971 was the formation of the World Economic Forum with Kissinger's student, Klaus Schwab, installed into into that position as part of a junior partner to the Bilderberger Group. Mm -hmm. The Bilderberger Group was a little bit older, similar institution, but older and uh, bankrolled again by the same people. The Rothschild, Jacob Rothschild had set up or not. He was assigned to set up a, a coterie of banks to take control of Europe, which it was called the Inter-Alpha Group. That was also 1971, January, same month. Um, the idea would be that one major bank, Santander, Royal Bank of Scotland, would be in every single or dominant European uh, industrial economy that would then increasingly take control of the deep state systems of each country under British command. And that was, again, 1971. This is behind a lot of the liberalization, the deregulation of the 70s that maximized in the 80s, bringing in people like Milton Friedman, uh, Hayek, like a lot of these Austrian school aristocratic you know, free market thinkers were all brought into Reaganomics, Thatcherism, that then justified more ideological, just strip nation states of protectionism, of regulation, so that we can have a, a more competitive playing field and have more innovation is what we were told. The reality, as we've seen, was the very opposite, and that was always the intended effect, was that you know the power structures moved increasingly to the, the people who participated in Bilderberger or in, in the World economic Forum, who ran things like PepsiCo and IBM right. that ran Microsoft and other things, right? So that was the real, that's the real nature of the British empire. People are like, oh yeah, the British empire ended in 1945 and they, they let everybody go free. And now it's the American empire. And it's like, no, the British empire was never what you thought it was. It wasn't the people with the funny red suits and, and funny hats. That's not what it was. That was the surface appearance. That was the least important component. It was mm-hmm. always the city of London in, mm-hmm. and this coterie of intelligence operations run through things like MI6, MI5, the colonial office. And the different um, occult groups, you know, various Masonic orders that are also tied to the Black nobility that situate and position people in any position of influence, media, corporate or other, and that arrange themselves in these types of planning groups.
0: So, Uh, clubs. uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people ask me, I mean, you talk about British imperialism a lot, but we have such a, a, like huge concern over China's presence. And, you know, you don't seem as concerned about the, sort of the, the, the Chinese imperialism at all. Or maybe it's just a, such a big topic. And then a lot of people say this, this imperialism, this, these imperialists, you know, it's non-localized to Britain now. It's really moved into elitism where it's the, the corporate multi-billionaires um, who are really just having these coups and extracting more and more money, and they're the new imperialists. It's just, and they're non-national. It could be someone in Greece, you know, these 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 uh, incredibly wealthy billionaires, just a handful of them. Do you still think? I mean, are you are you of the opinion, based on your um, knowledge, uh, that this is still today at this? Era, it's all about the Britain imperialism. This this effect?
1: no. I... The British Empire was not what, again, people thought it was. It wasn't British. And even, you know, what you're dealing with is a coterie from my, from my assessment, from my studies of history, what my uh, understanding of is, as best as I, I can glean, um, you're dealing with a limited network, a nest of families who can trace their uh, bloodlines back quite some ways um before Britain, like, you know, keep in mind the American Revolution was in many ways a British, an English civil war. It wasn't really like an American revolution the way we're taught. It was two different paradigms mm-hmm. within the English matrix that clashed, that came to an irreconcilable divide.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one faction represented a much healthier um cultural outlook that was more of a platonic Augustinian humanist way Mm -hmm. of thinking about the idea of man, mankind, man, and woman made in the image of God, the creator and God, the creator is not a tyrant. It is not a dead God that just created mechanisms of the universe as laws to be obeyed and could have no love or grace, but rather was a loving active God of a creative creator, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That made us in, that living image of creative uh, participation in the process that we're we're all parts of so
0: th- co-creating yes
1: co-creating yeah exactly yeah. and and so that's where conscience that's where conscience gets its meaning yeah. that's where the the powers of mind get their meaning their purpose uh-huh. is to actualize those potentials uh-huh. that every baby has so these augustinians oh yeah sorry
0: I was gonna say I'm fascinated by the bloodlines. I've been just starting to yeah, yeah. dive into that, um, and I know we'll get back to Canada. But can you? I mean, these 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 families, as you were saying, why are they so obsessed with the bloodlines? What what do you um, what is your? Can you give us just a quick? um yeah quick lesson there a lot of people are just sort of i've said it a few times on my podcast and they might think i'm just full of it you know wacko or that's woohoo but it's really true that there was yeah. an obsession with keeping the bloodlines pure okay and what does that mean and and, it, and do you have any knowledge on the rh negative rh positive aspect or is that just outside of your um outside of okay, yeah, that, okay that the
1: Rh positive negative is outside of my, my field of knowledge However, as far as the uh, psychological profile of an oligarchical class, because I mean, it's important to look at history from the standpoint of the acceptance of the reality of oligarchical systems as continuous functions, continuous existing systems that yes. have always been there in mm-hmm. varying degrees, shaping and influencing the contour of the observable history that we see in history books, right? Um And then the question then becomes, well, if there is this supranational continuity of oligarchical systems, both with, you know, and every culture has their own oligarchical systems. Um, There's not like a world that has ever been liberated from that. There's certain common characteristics Um, of those characteristics. I would say number one is a a religious like uh, demand for total control and obedience of their victim population. And I think when you look to ancient history, um, we all know of stories of the gods, the immortals, whether it's in the case of Egypt or in the case of, you know, the Athenian gods of Zeus and, and or, you know, Apollo and other things. There's always these stories of gods and you see it in, in Homer's Iliad and, and, um, and uh, Odyssey is these gods have a tendency in as conveyed by many of these dramatists to use human beings as playthings. They, they create wars, whether it's, you know, the, the, the people of, of Greeks against Troy over superficial grievances, mm-hmm. right? And the gods are just almost uh, occupying their time out of boredom, but mm-hmm. they're keeping the system under control. I would not be surprised to, if, if it was discovered, and I think it will be discovered, that the oligarchical families of ancient times created these myths, to portray themselves as more than human, these immortals, for mm-hmm. the consumption of their target victim slave population, who would be the limited finite mortals that couldn't possibly contend with something so grandiose as a divine, you know, elite mm-hmm. clan above, uh, who would dare? You know? Yeah, there's similar stories see we too. see in, in ancient Olmec and and other you know North American traditions, and that 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 have yes. also I think there's certain characteristics. They the oligarchy themselves. Um, I think that there is a fanaticism and, um, behind this, it's a cult. I see it as a cult. That's how I see it, but me it's a cult so with a lot of influence. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, and very sick cult
1: Yeah, Yeah. And they make their kids sick. You know, like you look at what the, I, I believe, honestly, and I think most common sense people tend to think that every baby has within it, the ability to, uh, awaken that divine spark of love and grace and reason me too. Yeah. Uh, and they don't do, they don't allow that. It's like they've worked, they work extra hard for their own progeny to not be able to tap into that and instead awaken a different set of perverse feelings yeah. and thoughts, which work together to create outcomes like an identities that are more conducive to a degenerate society mm-hmm. of, of elites that don't have any emotional connection to the slaves they have to manage. Absolutely. You get, you
0: well know. said and beautifully said, because a lot of people just label the word evil But it's been conditioned, I mean, Hmm. conditioned through training over years to create this and, 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 and perversion on a constant basis, so beautifully said. So I know we we know we're being subjected. Um, people can feel it now, people are waking up to this. Um, so moving back to Canada now, um, we were just, t- we were trying to um, really learn more about how the Trudeaus influenced this imperialism and really how, and I think they moved Canadians backwards. I mean, there was a few leaders that, fought for um, Canadian freedoms, for nationalism, for national interests, along comes Trudeau. How did he get in? A couple of people asked me some questions about his connection with some of these um, organizations in uh, Quebec Um, and give us a story on Trudeau, because it's fascinating. Yeah. Unless uh, do we, miss, who's, do we miss a piece between our leaders and that? let's see if we tie up any other loose ends before we get to Trudeau. Do we, we're doing well. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Uh, so Trudeau himself was, um, and it's difficult to do a, um, some of the history work one would like to do because the record office at uh, the National Archives that was supposedly housing the lifelong RCMP files on Trudeau Um, that were were declassified in 2019 when historians finally, after waiting, because you have to wait 20 years after someone dies to access these things, when historians finally got to the National Archives and they're like, okay, let's see these hundreds of boxes. The response they got was, unfortunately, we uh, burnt them in 1989 uh, because they were taking up too much valuable shelf space. So so it's like... Some of those sweet, sweet smoking guns, one would really like to see, we're not going to get some of that, you know. So, you have to sort of infer, but there's a lot to infer with, there's a lot to work with. Uh, one thing is that Trudeau, the young Trudeau, was originally a big follower of uh Adrienne Arcan,
0: mm. you know, Adrien Arcan, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, okay, the, the Quebec Nazi, yes, uh, yes. big, eugenicist. you touched on so, that a
0: little bit last time, but not too much, yeah, okay,
1: yeah, he was really big in Quebec, and um, he was yes. al- also being bankrolled. Uh, By R.B. Bennett, the uh, the conservative party at the uh, head of the conservative party, uh, prime minister of those days, um, who created his own Keynesian New Deal. He was a Viscount for he retired as a Viscount in Britain after the Laurier liberals took back power in 1935 and nationalized the Bank of Canada. but you had that this sounds whole...
0: Important. That sounds important.
1: <laughs> oh, that was very important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, let's go back to but, Trudeau. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Trudeau, uh, so he was a, a young supporter of Adrien Arcan. He's mm-hmm. recruited, you know, he's from a rich family and they like, they like young men who, um, who are from rich, well-to-do families because they, they're they more aristocratically minded in the, in the worst sense of those terms, right? Yeah. Um, and they can better work with those types of people. And Trudeau's dad was... A high-level monarchist made a made a fortune off of gas companies. Anyway, um, so Trudeau becomes recruited by one of the five. Remember, I mentioned there were five Rhodes Scholars who set up the League of for, so- for Social Reconstruction in Canada. One of them was F. R. Scott. Peter Dale Scott is actually his son, and I think that Peter Dale Scott is kind of like a left gatekeeper in my assessment. Says some useful things about the deep state, but really, there's some weird something weird that's being missed or left out. I think intentionally by Peter's analysis. Point is. F.R. Scott is early on one of the handlers of uh, Pierre after Pierre has been uh, deployed to study under in Harvard first under a fellow named uh, William Yandel Elliott, who's a Rhodes scholar who runs the, uh, at the time he's running the uh, the Chatham House of Harvard zone, uh, teaching some of Pierre's co-students are Henry Kissinger's, Big New Brzezinski studies under Yandel Elliott, Samuel P. Huntington. Um, And after a couple of years in Harvard, um, in the Yandel Elliott crowd, again, he likes like Melner, all of these guys, they tend to like young, uh, you, you tend to have young boys, young sociopathic men who are like brought in to, uh, be guided by a mentor. It's really gets creepy, but so Pierre is just really adapting nicely to this whole experience. He's sent to study for a couple of years at the London school of economics after that under, a the head of the Fabian society at the time is Harold Lasky Uh, that becomes his mentor and Lasky sends him on a 500 day tour of the British empire before finishing his degree, which has him go. And even in his biographies, I've I've read several it's, it's, it's cryptic how he's like, Oh yeah, then I was in Lebanon. Oh. And, and then they had a, a a, a, a revolution that unseated a certain national government and put in somebody else. And then I went to this country and, 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 Oh, another coup d'état happened, and then I went to this country in Pakistan, and, and it's like you're—he's being introduced to the uh, the system. You know, he's given a world tour. He's introduced to the the nature of the global British deep state. He's sent okay. to China. He meets with Mao. He's he goes to Russia. Um, he meets with leaders that become, that take power under Khrushchev, and so then he comes back to Canada in uh, 1950 from this world tour. And he's immediately uh, set up in the Privy Council office where he's working. um, Again, this is when FR Scott is his primary handler. Uh, Again, just getting a sense of the nerve center, the center of actual command of Canadian decision making. And that's where the Rhodes Scholars had taken their maximum control was the Privy Council office. So he he gets that sense. And then he's sent back to Quebec during a time when there's an, an effort to... Extract Christianity from Quebec. That is the entirety of the 1950s, is the battle and to, to get rid of the Christian um, government and Christian culture of Quebec, which was a Catholic beachhead at the time, but one of the, the, the biggest anti-eugenics areas that was highly organized. That's one thing about the Catholic. People might have, have some grievances about the, the hierarchical structure of the Catholic Church, and yes. I would agree with them. However, if you actually have moral people influencing such a thing, you can make things happen very effectively and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what was the case with Quebec, which again had uh, people like Daniel Johnson Sr., um, mm-hmm. Paul Sauvé, who later became premier, Maurice Duplessis. There, there was... There was Uh, An ability to deploy Canadian, Quebec activists all the way down to Illinois, Arkansas, other places, New York, all across Canada, they would deploy activists to uh, undermine and organize resistance to education reforms that were bringing in Darwinianism, that were applying eugenics or sterilization policies, as was the case in much of North America. Uh, to weed out the unfit. So they were actually really quite good. And the eugenics, there's a, a magazine at the time called Eugenical Review, which Jeez. is a review for eugenicists. And it they say have the big, that
0: today it's much more disguised. <laughs>
1: they would give it a different name, yeah. But, yes. but this is a night, they, they actually write in 1946 that the biggest headache that we have um, are these damn Quebec Catholics. Jeez, and so,
0: really? Yeah, wow. I, I got a quote
1: from one of my Erica Becker. Yeah, so I uh, yeah.
0: must be pleased about that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We we're giving a big headache. So, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's job was to to organize a young a young nest of technocratically minded uh, uh young intellectuals around an existential nihilistic ethic, and and the magazine he was in charge of managing to organize that that new. It was really an an, an anti Christian cult. Of intellectuals was called Cite Libre, um, kind of similar to the the liberation. It was it was a very the idea was a we have to liberate ourselves from the belief in religion, nationalism, all these old archaic ideas that are obsolete. And so he was in charge of that for uh, for quite some time as editor in chief, and he operated through an um, an outfit in the Uni- Université de Laval. There's a sociology department that was headed by a fellow who worked very closely with, with Vincent Massey. You know, Vincent Massey, like I said, created the first Royal Commission on Letters, Humanities, and Sciences in 1949 to 50 as part of the de-Americanization process of the Canadian culture, You know, making sure that Canadians couldn't access American newspapers or magazines or uh, TV shows, um, these sorts of things. And so this guy, Father Georges-Henri Lévesque, was a follower of Aldous Huxley, and this belief that we we need a brave new world of a caste system of elites that could control alphas, betas, gammas, and yada yada. So he runs. He's called. He's also known as the father of the Quiet Revolution and the father of Quebec sociology.
0: Okay, people are right. familiar and, with the Quiet Revolution. That's a, a fairly famous term.
1: Yes, that that becomes uh, the the battle cry. <laughs> um, yeah. Was essentially it was this. it was. A, 60s now we're into the 60s well this is now 1960 uh, trudeau is working uh for the for father levesque as well as, and he's working very closely with road scholars like uh joan beats and uh, there's a variety uh, paul guerin Lajoie, is another road scholar working out of that department all Working very hard to undermine and sabotage the work that was being put into motion by pro-American industrialists around the the L'Union Nationale, who wanted to, to build um, an engineering culture with a hydroelectric power development that would define the character and culture of the of the Quebecois, always working very closely with the Americans. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when uh, Maurice Duplessis dies in in fifty nine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he's old, so you could say maybe it was natural. But then Paul uh, Sauvé becomes his new premier, who is alive for four months before he die, dies also at a very like ripe age. And he's known as sort of the Martin Luther King of uh, Quebec. He was he was calling for massive overhauls, uh, anti-corruption policies, a revival of or, a serious development strategy. Um, and he dies after four months, and then. You have a, a, a lame dog guy who, who's flushed. Um, now, at that same time, this is when Diefenbaker is facing his own fight in Ottawa. Diefenbaker is, is he wins Quebec as a as a conservative, a progressive conservative, but he wins Quebec because of his alliance with the Union Nationale, who say, okay, we're going to work with you because we feel the same way. He also wins BC because of WAC Bennett, the premier from 1952 to 72. All three of these forces are very much on a on a, anti-Malthusian, anti-limits-to-growth orientation. They all see the opening up of the Arctic for industrial and scientific progress as the new phase of human development that they all fight for. And they all are trying to work with the JFK, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, American counterparts that were still actively fighting to stop the takeover of this British deep state in America itself. So you have this whole thing going. It's, It's a living... Chem, you know uh chemistry and um this is where the the liberal party ends up taking power so the liberal party on the provincial the quebec provincial liberals mm-hmm. are under a fellow named Jean lesage and Jean lesage is a mixed bag he he becomes premier and i think 60 or 61
0: mm-hmm.
1: now he on the one hand brings in a whole bunch of road scholars and fabians with him who are anti- like these are Satanists, <laughs> straight up. Now, at the same measure, he's not a bad guy. There's there's also good people who are still influenced by the love of progress and overcoming limits to growth. He sees himself modeled as a, his inspiration is Clarence C.D. Howe, who had, who had just recently died. He was ousted in 57. Um, but but he was known as the minister of everything, who, who basically built the Avro Arrow, Canada's uh, Can-Do nuclear reactors. Some of the biggest infrastructure products were all done under, CD house so Lesage is is inspired by that role model. So he's not fully 100 percent controlled uh, by these these freaks. Um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau is still an NDP figure, but he gives him he admits in an interview that he doesn't believe the NDP has the power to capture real political power. They're always a tertiary party. So in Maurice Strong, Maurice Strong gives a long interview to Elaine Dewar in, in 1994. And it's, the book is called A Cloak of Green. It's a wonderful book. It's hard to find now. It's been, it costs hundreds of dollars to get it online, unfortunately, but you can still get it on archive.org. It's a really good read. I, I found this high, of high use. Maury Strong, he's the, at the time he's in his <laughs> early 30s. he's been recruited by David Rockefeller. He's the vice president of Power Corporation. And um, <clears throat> he describes in this book to Dewar, Elaine Dewar, that he was on, in 1963, an, the organizing committee, which I believe was in Montebello, Quebec, that fielded a bunch of young talent from the NDP party. And he was on the selection committee that uh, basically tapped Pierre Elliott Trudeau for having the right stuff. And oh, so okay. Pierre Trudeau changed orange to red. And at this time, this is when the liberal party of C.D. Howe had been hollowed out. There was a five-year absolute war within the liberal party between 1957 and 1962-63 between the pro-development factions that were flushed. And uh, what's his name? Um, the, the former chairman of the liberal party who was also flushed called it a, a palace coup. Um, it was run by these road Scholars, especially um, this figure named Walter Lockhart, Lockhart Gordon, who is the executive okay. chair of the Canadian Chatham House, the the CIIA. So Pierre Elliott Trudeau is selected. He's got the talent. He's got the the yeah. wits. You know, he's yeah. a smart guy, and so he is quickly quickly promoted. Um, you know he he gets the the he becomes a member of Parliament for the Liberals very quickly during this process. He very quickly is made Justice Minister, where he makes the point that liberalizing, I I think it's. Uh, uh, you Know sex crimes, you know, there was same sex marriage was was still illegal back then, so he sort of becomes like the cool, hip young guy who's like, I get it, whatever you know, the government doesn't belong in the bedroom of the people, and that's fine, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. But so he, but he sold what's called it. They take the, the, the model, the successful propaganda model that the mm-hmm. military industrial complex, like ENI records, which came out of the um, British military, they used a certain model called that created what was known as Beatlemania creating a a random ragtag group of of people of 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 singers and musicians could be anybody and market 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 and um and create a a cultish um
0: yeah uh, fanaticism
1: in a a population right of girls who will like wet their pants because they see this ragtop guy now that's that's
0: what what happened with them that's definitely Trudeau mania yeah
1: That's what they did. That is a same model. They had the same PR firms, everything else. They marketed it. It worked.
0: Yeah. And that's why even
1: today, like a lot of like baby boomers who lived through that, who were young girls in that time, even today, you invoke the image of Pierre Trudeau and they get this, it's like, again, that hypnotic anchoring, right? They get the feeling that felt thought just overwhelms them of, Oh Oh, my God. Not me.
0: I know. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you were younger so, you avoided that that, uh, that <laughs> no i think
0: i would have avoided it so let's fast track because i know I, let's go back to yes okay what okay I one got more it. thing I, and then let's go because okay, there's so many it. issues okay go ahead yeah go but hard. i think you
1: were actually going to ask me the question that, that but just to like tie it together because you asked yeah, about yeah. nixon right in 1971 yeah yeah exactly. what is just society yes is just society is just another way it's not a just society it's, it, that's an, a bunch of flaky nothing words that all actually denote um, a post-industrial society with a government, like the, the utilization of government power to create a welfare state with a, a debt-based economic structure, which involved utilizing the Bank of Canada, not for emitting credit for the development of Canada, which is what Baker or C.D. Howe were trying to do, but rather simply use it for manipulating interest rate on behalf of the Bank of International Settlements and, and European old black nobility in, or, and, and justifying the growth of the monetary system based on increasing rates of debt. So you could see these debt charts from 1971, 72 to the present, and it just like explodes. The uh-huh. same thing happened in the case of the US, of European governments too. The whole economy became a, a debt-based economy where we stopped producing anything real. And so uh, I, he had a process of hollowing out our infra- our industries of yeah. of slowly turning. Uh, up, like sixty percent of Quebec's heritage sites were destroyed to become uh, affordable housing uh, facilities under Pierre Elliott Trudeau's leadership in that period. So it's uh, I, it's again. I,
0: I, yeah. Go ahead. I wanted to add, No, No,
1: finish. no, sorry. Chime in. Chime in, please. Sorry.
0: I, I uh, just, you're bringing up uh, something. A lot of younger people, and I don't, you know, get confused about this. And, and even, you know, any age group, is that there's the, this whole idea of socialism in their mind. And I have friends who say, you know, they, they can't debate on this topic. They say, Canada's a socialist country. That's why we're so well off. And yet, what we're what we're really witnessing is these systems, these imperialist systems. They they have a, they systematically impoverish people, and systems of nationalism are enriching people. And so, people get confused by socialism and and these these parties that they think are are implementing structures, social structures that are helping them, when these very structures are actually harming them. Can you just quickly explain that? to my audience, because there's a lot of confusion on that. And then let's go into Pierre's time um, in office and how that connects to today with Justin before we finish up today. This is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, the thing about these words, categories of words are, are somehow it's, it's, it's a, a difficult terrain terrain to navigate through. If people think that the, that the truth is located in the words, because, Oftentimes, two people could use the same words, but they got very different definitions or meaning of what those words mean to them. And they may not, not even identify that in the course of the discussion, which is why a platonic method, platonic dialect, dialectic is very important, so that you're, you're both having a, a, a dialect with yourself, examining yourself and your assumptions, as well as having a dialect with, with other people, examining the assumptions and, and clearly defining the words that you're using so that you're on the same wavelength, right? Um, and you'll find like the word capitalism, am I like intrinsically for capitalism? Well, if I'm talking about, if you call globalization, capitalism, no, that's feudal capitalism. That's mm-hmm. like George Soros is not a capitalist in that sense. Yeah, feudal, no. right? yes. yeah it's, it's exactly. feudalism with the capitalist veneer. And are yeah. you going to tell me I'm, to- am I totally against every expression of socialism that's ever been in existence? I won't say that either. I'm not going to take that position because you've got feudal socialists like the Fabian Society socialists, or again, um, yeah, Laurie Strong is, is that type yeah. of thing. Um,
0: right.
1: they, they want feudalism with a socialist veneer to attract unions and labor and the poor and other things. So, But they don't care about those people. They're, they just want to weaponize them or use them for their advantage. Also, ultimately, they want to kill them. Um, but then you know, you've got examples throughout history. You, you can't avoid hitting these incredibly noble people at different times who thought of themselves as socialists, but who were assassinated by the CIA. And you're like, if you look at what they're doing, like Kwame Nkrumah, he called himself a socialist. Mm
0: -hmm. He was
1: overthrown by the CIA, but he was also a lover of progress. And he was a friend of JFK. And he, he just simply believed, he didn't believe in every single thing Marx and Lenin wrote. He just believed that social values should animate the behavior of the system. That's all. And he also believed that there were, there were no limits to growth, that you could always cultivate new discoveries, and that's, that's what gives value to your system's policies. So same thing for good, cap- good capitalists are people who believe the same thing, that we have to create capital, create new discoveries, or at least encourage new discoveries, and, and provide the best incentive for be- the best ideas to, to emerge and be applied, right? Right so yeah, it's, you got that.
0: ethically and responsibly that's you know un-, un unmanaged capitalism gives you companies like monsanto and you know unethical regulators and things like that okay so let's yeah, let's go yeah. back to trudeau because he's a fascinating <laughs> figure uh, like you said i know people who had scrapbooks on trudeau because they loved him so much one was my late aunt um and then i know people like my uh ex my former um My husband's grandfather had a hate book, absolutely hated with a passion, but he was a hardcore, a practical minded farmer, turned stockbroker and very smart man. He hated him with passion and documented all the damage he's done to Canada. He'd be thrilled to hear this podcast now. So let's get into some of the dirt and what he did to harm Canada. So, um, oh, yeah, I mean,
1: Petro Canada, I mean, he worked closely with Maury Strong On a number of occasions. Maurice Strong not only was part of the selection committee, as I said, but became the head of the the CIDC, the the Canadian International Development uh, Corporation, which came out of his control of external aid, which basically saw Canada playing a role of an enforcer of a global colonial economic program. Uh, he, He was among the first to put forth this notion of giving loans to poor countries on the condition that they would not use those loans for Anything that was not approved by the the bankers of the IMF or the World Bank,
0: oh, and that really? would then
1: yeah. So yeah. he was the first. Canada was the one of the most ambitious nations uh, to do that,
0: under Pierre Trudeau. US, under, Pierre under Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau. Yeah. And when did he and get then, into government? So when was he first? Um, he became voted a member of
1: Parliament school. in 1965, and he became the the Justice Minister in I believe it was 67 under uh, Lester B. Pearson. Uh, but because Lester B. Pearson was a weaker man, again, kind of like C.D. Howe, he was sometimes influenced by the good. And when you're an oligarch looking for who is going to be your auxiliary, who's gonna, like who's going to be your manager, um, you can't allow that sort of mushiness. You need somebody right. more solid. And also, he didn't know French. That didn't work for yeah. Canada. Uh, so Pierre Elliott Trudeau <clears throat> is brought in. Lester B. Pearson is taken out, and. Um, and, uh, sorry, uh, pierre Elliott Trudeau is then assigned to carry out. especially between 68 and, and 1972, one of the biggest sweeping reforms of the Canadian, the entire government is overhauled in ways that I don't think even today people realize. He gave a speech in
0: 1969. Is that um, when he first got in? So some people are like, when did he get voted in as prime minister? Yeah, or it
1: was 68. Like 68, um, okay.
0: So, and when did and he change the, uh, create the charter of freedom and rights?
1: 82. 82. Okay. But, and this is the thing he brought in and he gave a speech in, I think it was Hamilton, Ontario, um, at a liberal party convention saying, and I, I paraphrase that cybernetics has given us a new t- science of control that we have never had before and this is going to be the key to solving all of our problems cybernetics also what emerges out of cybernetics which is a science of power science of governing um it's basically wow. treating all systems like they're machines whether it's an ecosystem whether it's a human economy whatever and you treat it like the, the governing class is expected to treat it like a machine. And cybernetics comes from the idea of, uh, of um, Norbert Wiener, John von Neumann, Bertrand Russell, who had right. said, okay, just like a boat, it might be a complex boat, but most people, 99% of those working on the boat do not need to know what the, what the boat is doing. They just need to know their very specialized job as an oarman, the guy you know, managing mm-hmm. the, the engine or whatever. Only the ship's captain and maybe his assistant need to have the right to have real knowledge of navigation and what the whole is doing, all the parts and how they work together. So what cybernetics did, and this came in through NATO originally in the late 40s, it came in through the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And then it was brought into Quebec first with the liberal takeover of Quebec and then um, into the federal government under Pierre Trudeau. Which called for blowing up the bureaucracy of through the Privy Council office, the Prime Minister's office, you blow up everything bureaucratically,
0: mm-hmm. and you
1: and you in maximize complexity of each department in such a way that no department is allowed to know what the other department does, whether it's the Treasury office, whether it's the oh. Department of External Affairs, whatever. So everybody that everybody is now hyper specialized and only a small nerve center around the Privy Council. Is allowed to see the whole. That's Mm. cybernetics. Okay. And this comes in through the Maurice Maurice Lamontagne, who's a senator, also an Oxford-trained fanatic, brings this into science policy and educational policy management under Trudeau. The whole thing, and this is being done in the United States under the Rand Corporation. It's being done. It's brought in by Kissinger and the Trilateral Commission in the United States at the same time. It's being done in, in in across Europe again under the OECD and NATO. So this is where we have the intellectual castration of the governing class over the dead bodies of people like Bobby Kennedy, Enrico Mattei, and, and Aldo Moro, and others who are eliminated. People, in, in Quebec, we had Daniel Johnson Sr., the premier, who is probably one of the greatest premiers in, in Canadian or Quebecois history, um, who calls for creating a republic of Quebec based upon the model of, or the best model of, of uh, the US constitution. And he brings in Charles de Gaulle to speak to Quebec. And that's where the whole Vive la Quebec Libre comes from, was that fight that de Gaulle was also waging against his, his own deep state that wanted to kill him and tried 30 times. 30 so, times? 30, wow. He survived 30 assassination attempts, Charles de Gaulle. Um, but, wow. but Quebec played a key role in his grand strategy of breaking the British Empire and creating a system of cooperation around the world. Um, Daniel Johnson dies in a mysterious way, no autopsy in 1968 at the unveiling of the Manicouagan Five Dam, the biggest hydroelectric dam that he had spent 20 years fighting to create, and he finally does it, but he doesn't survive. And then Pierre Elliott Trudeau, in 1970, is assigned to manage the extraction of the residual Christian element within the political class of Quebec, and that becomes the October Crisis, the okay. Martial Law. Yes. Now, coming back in a play, remember how I mentioned that he was in charge of a magazine called Cité Libre as the editor-in-chief for 10 years, yes, Pierre yes. Trudeau? Yes. When he, when he becomes a member of parliament, he gives up the position of editor-in-chief of Cité Libre. He gives it over to a fellow named uh, Pierre Vallière, who becomes the new editor-in-chief. Pierre Vallière is the intellectual um, inspiration and controller of an organization some people might recognize called the Front de Libération de Quebec, the oh. FLQ. Oh,
0: I was going to ask you because that's what someone asked me to ask you his connection to the FLQ, Rene Lévesque and Pierre Laporte. So we're getting well, to and,
1: this. Rene yeah. Lévesque is, keep in mind, he's also a Liberal Party member at that time, at, at the same yeah. time that Trudeau is in Quebec. And he is a a, a a regular writer for Cité Libre as well. So him and okay. Pierre Elliott Trudeau go back quite, quite a ways.
0: On the same page. Rene
1: Lévesque. Yeah. Um, very mm-hmm. much the same page, both Jesuit-trained. Yeah. Uh, Rainer Levesque is recruited, as he says in his autobiography, by an, uh, an American intelligence official uh, during World War II uh, mm-hmm. to be uh, basically like a Project Mockingbird type of, you know, intelligence
0: mm-hmm.
1: operative in the media. Um, and that's in his own a- autobiography. But so <clears throat> FLQ is sort of the American branch of, or the Canadian branch of, uh, or Quebec branch of... Uh, the Weather Underground, you know, a bunch of uh, fascist controlled Marxist Leninist uh, Maoist idiots, like low level tools, who are given uh, Marxist Leninist Maoist propaganda and radicalized as domestic terrorists controlled by intelligence agencies that themselves we find were actually being run by the actual Nazis and fascists that were recruited by Alan Dulles and the CIA and MI6. After World War II, the majority of the worst elements of Nazi and Italian fascist controls were never punished in Nuremberg. They were all absorbed into Western intelligence agencies and they ran things that became known as Operation Gladio, the Red Brigades of Italy, that created these, these, again, controlled domestic terror operations to explode bombs in mailboxes, malls, scare the shit out of the population so that the people would then, in fear, run and accept more right-wing governments like Pinochet and others that would provide them protection. But those governments were, again, being advised and controlled by those same Nazis that were now in Argentina, South America, Egypt, and other places, and including Europe itself. Or in the case of America, a lot of them were brought into America to, to teach at Columbia University or the Chicago of people, School of Economics.
0: You bring up a point that a lot of people get confused about, it's this yeah. whole and it's these words are thrown at and you said words, you know, you have to look deeper than words, the fascists and then the communists and they have so much in common. You know, it's all it's all control. But, um, you know, the right wings and the left wings and, you know, it, it gets complicated for people. Because they're like, oh, you're a right-wing extremist, or you're a left-wing extremist. And they really interchange their techniques or even mix them up sometimes to have a little bit of both, don't they? And what we're looking (laughs) at is just, they're really just tools to control people. They can be interchangeable. (laughs) And so one government might use both tools. And that you know, at, at, even at the same time. So people can get really, really confused and, and thrown off by these terms. Yeah, I just want you to clarify. Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's, that, that example of the, the, the virus taking over hosts is great. Hold on. Yeah, go back, back to that. that. Perfect. I, yeah, live, uh, yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And, yeah. And Trudeau, and I wrote a whole article on this, a big chunk of my uh, Untold History of Canada, volume four goes into this in detail. But the FLQ crisis, of uh, October 1970, where there was tanks on the streets of Montreal, martial law. Um, it's still a, a traumatic effect for maybe many baby boomers who were young young people at the time. Wow um that oversaw the murder of the deputy pr- premier of quebec pierre laporte who was a devout christian who was resistant always to this transformation of the the governing structures of quebec and canada uh, he was he was uh, murdered with a, his his uh, cross necklace and left in the back seat of a, of a van what was discovered even uh, la presse and journal de montreal even back in the 70s had had still a little bit of honesty back in them and you could even find in their archives investigative reporting that was published demonstrating how the RC, uh, at least a branch within the RCMP Special operations units um, were in control of not some but every branch and cell of the FLq wow. during that time including uh, uh, situations where RCMP armaments, were emptied out of explosive devices and provided to these operatives. Some of them were like useful idiots. Other ones were actual, you know, agents who were provocateurs and coordinators, just like today, just like today yeah. in, in the post 9-11 age. You know, Jeez. these two idiot, idiot Canadians who are radicalized by like uh, mm-hmm. FBI-made uh, Islamist propaganda were recruited to become terrorists who are going to set up a bomb in some like public setting on Canada Day 2016. They were thwarted and we were all told oh how great it was that our intelligence agencies have done a good job well today their case has been thrown out of office or thrown out of court by the supreme court of or the superior court of um of appeals of of i think bc because it was proven that every single operative within that who recruited them gave them the instructions told them how to carry out these these attacks were all working with CSIS or the RCMP i should say now CSIS was created just to make the story a little bit more freaky uh, in 1983 was when CSIS was created by this fellow named Michael Pitfield. Michael Pitfield was known as purely at Trudeau's shadow. And he was like a Byzantine guy. He loved operating in that environment. He was also a co-founder under of what was called the Canadian club of Rome in 1970. And Maurice Strong was another co-founding member. Roland Michener, the uh, Governor General, also Rhodes Scholar of Canada, was another Um, co-founder. Maurice Lamontagne, who I'd already brought up, was a co-founder of the Canadian Club of Rome that brought in the limits to growth. Um, Now, why does this guy Pitfield set up CSIS? Well, he sets it up because the publicity became so loud and public. This coincided also with the church committee hearings in the United States that unveiled for the first time in 1974 or 75, the abuses of the CIA MK ultra project mockingbird, all of these things were first now made really public in the U S same thing was happening in Canada. The abuses of this special operations branch of the RCMP that were conducting terrorist cells was made public. And that gave them such a bad bit of publicity that they needed to transfer the functions that had to still continue under a new agency, which was why CSIS was created. And, um, this is I mean to this very day one of Pitfield's, his son um Michael Pitfield's son is uh forgot his name now but he's also a, a key handler of Justin Trudeau second generation um, childhood friend
0: everyone wants to know about the connection with Castro and what is your what is your opinion conspiracy theory stuff is Justin uh the son of Castro in your in your I
1: opinion? I will for evidence. the sake of There's a
0: lot of, yeah,
1: you know, I'll, I'll remain out of that debate for now. I I think that, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I want to put you this, Uh, okay, so. Because, you know, here's the,
1: here's the one thing, like, people have shown me pictures of him and Castro at, at, at the same age, um, and they're very persuasive, he looks a lot like a young Castro, and then (laughs) the same, same time, I've looked at pictures, but here's where it gets a little bit more, like, I, I had somebody else who sent me pictures of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. At the same right. age in his 30s 40s and frankly he also kind of looks like
0: okay yeah. all right so fair like, enough. Ah. yeah no 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 so that's fair enough well let's so let's go to the relationship yeah. and how that affected Canada or do you think it wasn't even that big of a deal the, the-
1: okay uh so Canada's Canada he described in an interview in uh, 1970 uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau described how he sees the role of Canada's foreign policy in within the context of the Cold War capitalism versus communism dichotomy right and his response was very brief but I think very in, very exact he his response was to create counterweights that's all he said and he left it at that
0: hmm, what does that mean that is interesting I like that that's a good nugget thank you
1: yeah. And the, 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 the idea of, of how the, the Cold War was managed was around this Manichaean idea of balance of powers. Mm-hmm. And you have to see the world the way a British geopol like a grand strategist would look at the world you look like the puppet up. master
0: there with your hands yeah there. yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, puppet master just, and also you know, yeah, yeah two
1: two different visual metaphors you got the puppet master but you also have the the, the scales balancing right yeah
0: both um, of them at once that was great yeah i saw both yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. great
1: yeah A little visual pun um yeah. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs>
1: so whenever the way it would work would be whenever the um the, the, the balance would tip a little bit more towards um, an edge on the communist side of things, somebody like a, a, a chameleon-like character, like, like Pierre Elliott Trudeau in the Canadian system of Fabians, would tip their, their um, support over to Nixon and the capitalist side of the equation. And then when things would move a little bit more too much towards the capitalist side of the equation in the, you know, the, the, bal- the strategic balance... He'd float, flip over the counterweight and go and hug Castro or go meet up with Khrushchev or hug Mao or something, you know, and flip it over the other way. So there was always this need to maintain equilibrium um, within the, the mutual assured destruction doctrine because they couldn't really allow, they would rather not have nuclear bombs unleashed. That's like, even the oligarchy would rather that not happen. But the fear of it happening was a very useful tool to keep everybody um, behaved the way they wanted us to play a certain game.
0: This is so happening I think, yeah, today, now this is playing out, and it hasn't been playing out for a long time, but this whole nuclear threat narrative is playing out, you know, almost daily now with the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict.
1: Yeah, and this is where you, you do se- seem to get a faction fight within the oligarchy. We see evidence of this, because while you have some factions doubling down on this pathway to maintain their script for what they believe the New World Order was, was supposed to look like, which did not involve Russia or any Eurasian country like China or India Mm -hmm. in any way, not playing by the same Malthusian rules. Everyone was supposed to be in the same building that was put through a controlled demolition by this time. That was according to the-
0: Yeah, Yeah. this is powerful. And I'm so glad you brought this up and it's a huge gem in itself is Russia is, is going against the new world order. As is China and the whole BRIC system, we don't have time to get into this, but them building their own financial structure is not what they counted on. It's it's good news for freedom lovers all over the world. Yeah, I mean
1: it's it's got problems, you know? Like I'm I'm not saying that anybody is like an angel in this game, but they they definitely right now are led by by um by leaders that leaders that do not want to sacrifice their people or their ancient civilizations on some altar of Gaia for a big kill. So they're well, committed it- to rejecting the li- the limits to growth uh, agenda upon which the fourth industrial revolution, which is a cybernetics doctrine, um, it's is a,
0: cult. it's really a It's really an anti-god, uh, you know, oh, yeah. humanity. Pr- yeah.
1: That is not hyperbole. That is exactly true. And anybody who wants to get a sense of this, I would suggest go listen today. Putin just gave, Vladimir Putin, for those who, who might still think that he's this big, bad, Stalinist, Hitlerian supervillain, like we've been told, listen to his Valdi Club discussion speech and Q&A today, which went on for five bloody hours. Oh, Half an hour really? speech. Right. I, I just started watching it, it's brilliant. And then four and a half hours of Q, live Q&A, very Where do uncontrolled you get that? environment.
0: Where can people access that? Go to,
1: go to TASS, T-A-S-S, it's the Russian, one of the biggest Russian media outlets that gives you always links to um, uh, speeches, transcripts, videos, other things, policies of the government in, in, for an English audience. Also okay. RT and Sputnik News are both very useful for an English speaking audience. They usually have links when they, when they do this sort of coverage.
0: Can we still get um, our tea? I can't get that here in Canada anymore.
1: I, where I am in in Quebec, I can, but you might need to use a VPN. Sputnik Sputnik News, you you definitely can still get. You can't get these if you're an American, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, you have to use a VPN. Um,
0: okay. I know we've sidetracked. Okay, that's great. That's a great segue. Thank you. So let's sure. go back to Trudeau. I know we, we could talk for hours and I don't want to take too much uh we'll have to break this up if we could get you on again I'd be so thrilled sometime because you're so fascinating so everyone wants to know ab- about this Trudeau character and then uh, obviously let's get us into Justin quickly then we'll finish up in the next 10 minutes a- at the max so <laughs> 10 minutes to go through all of Trudeau and and then just touch on Justin um you know some of your thoughts on on how we can we can really get um a better canada back do you have hope that we can oppose this imperialistic um kind of nihilistic atheist uh anti um, anti canadian kind of anti nationalism um march um over time and how long do you think it would take to <laughs> to make progress and yeah, so here we go. 10 minutes. Yeah,
1: it's all yours. Yeah. yeah, 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 Well, you know, look, I'm I'm not I'm not always the best on tactics. I'm I'm I I like grand strategy and I, I like the big ideas as as people can probably glimmer um into yeah. just how I I'm, I'm speaking. Um we have to. It's not a question of can we? We have to. Um the the consequences are just unacceptable. Now, is it possible that the battle might be lost in the short term or that things might get really tough. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible. It's happened before, you know, mm-hmm. um, certain people who have acted tragically throughout history, didn't take on responsibilities. They, they were obliged to uh, morally and tolerated by acts of omission uh, evil. The consequences were that those societies didn't do well. We have dark ages, splattered throughout our history for that to give us lessons on what not to do. Um, so is there a guarantee of victory? Not at all. Um, does that mean that the universe and that God is thus just playing with us or that God doesn't exist or is evil or something? Not at all. It means that God is good. God, God does not tolerate corruption and stupidity and evil for indefinitely. And there will be repercussions that have to be paid. That being said, um, it's always a see-
0: lesson to take responsibility isn't it and to step in and and take action to co-create the better world you want to see not sit back hide or hope someone else does it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, something.
1: like we're we're part of it. We all kind of, you know, we we're in a very voyeuristic type of culture where we're used to just watching t- TV, watching videos, watching uh YouTube, other things and and it's sort of it lacks an encouragement that previous generations, I think, had more access to. That we are parts of the the, the theater, the stage that we're watching. We're also participants on that stage, mm-hmm. like Shakespeare said, right? All the world's a stage, and every every one of us are are players. Um, but the question then is willfully: do we uh, sit? Do we choose? And it's a matter of free choice, right? Do we choose to? And it's difficult situate our identities in that process? Or do we choose to withhold out of fear or whatever ignorance right. uh, from that, that needed identity shift into something more human? Now,
0: right.
1: I could see something very good blossoming. And I think I, I we spoke about this last time uh, I was on your show. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time in Ottawa. and And, and that was an expression, it was a life-changing experience in many ways, or at least a yeah. paradigm-changing experience for me, because I didn't think that Canadians had that within them. I didn't think right. that that was possible.
0: I was and so proud of Canada. And look how we inspired yeah. the world. Absolutely. absolutely.
1: Can we do that, so, that again? Yeah, absolutely. And every single person there thought that they were alone, right? And and it was like this uh, emperor has no clothes effect where everybody in that uh, story looking at the naked fat emperor walking down with his, yeah. his entourage, are all they all know that he's naked but yes. they're all playing into the story, clapping and cheering. And there's this cognitive dissonance they can't confront except for that one kid.
0: And that's as soon the, as he does
1: it, and that's what yeah. happened in Canada, right? Millions yeah. of people just in Ottawa alone and across Canada, same thing. Just everyone was like, Oh wow. I'm not alone. Every, other people think this too. Or you got yeah. this with, with politicians being confronted like AOC and it's gone viral now where you had like some uh, Schiller Institute uh, members who confronted AOC as a vicious for the, the war faction, the, the military industrial complex who's mm-hmm. pushing to get us all, all killed. And and the denunciation was so well done and so honest that it went viral. And it we've seen now um, mm-hmm. similar hundreds of other such interventions all across the US, some in Canada, from people yes. who have just been like, wait, I can do that. I don't have to yeah. just shut up and like, let my representative just kill me. I can actually like stand up and say, say the truth. And so yeah. it's, this stuff is contagious.
0: So I'm I don't so know where this, this Yeah, I'm so glad you said this because so many people lose hope. And I found even yeah. on a local and provincial level, civic action does count. So people would be uh, like probably ticked at me if I didn't get you to speak about the Charter of Freedom and Rights. So just give me your assessment on that. And then let's just segue a little bit into Justin. I know he could be a, another topic and we'll end there um, because you've been so, it's so interesting world history and you maintain an optimism despite these characters that have really, um, you know, you uh, you know, malicious intentions towards humanity, basically running the show for, you know, many, many years, let's say hundreds, if not thousands of years, same crew. Um, So when it comes to Trudeau, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, what what was his uh, intention in developing this Charter of Freedoms and Rights? And what were the negative consequences? well
1: it was it was to uh, troubleshoot a process that was <clears throat> underway in the late 70s around a, a serious fight that had begun um, all across Canada around the question of would we why don't we have a real constitution <laughs> every That's other country question. does
0: yeah yeah, but, yeah. And,
1: uh, <laughs> You know, we only have this weird thing from 1867 saying like, we're uh, <laughs> we're a confederacy uh, who's designed to support the interests of the British empire. And it's like, that's not a constitution. Um, so why don't we have one? And there was a discussion around the bill of rights as well, which was like, well, this is probably the, the closest thing that we have ever had to a legitimate, authentic constitution. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we continue that process? And why don't we then abandon absurd archaic ideas like the monarchy the crown which mm-hmm. if you like if you abide by the principle that we're all created equal that we all have inalienable rights regardless of our, our of our class or uh, language or, or religion whatever we all are equal e- equal in having universal characteristics as as citizens of a country and that mm-hmm. the laws emanate from that that's I mean those concepts are, are enshrined in the Bill of Rights of of, 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 uh, of uh, Diefenbaker Right, uh, and and it, and it's like, well, if that's there, then you don't need a monarchy or a hereditary class or a privy council to exercise, or governor generals or lieutenant governors or any of that none of that is needed. So mm-hmm. th- this was sort of really a, a, a strong discussion, especially in Quebec, but all over BC and Alberta and, and Ontario, everywhere. Um, so I think Pierre Elliott Trudeau had to do a bit of a Delphic sabotage. Where it's like, if you can't destroy the conversation, at least try to co opt the conversation and control it. That's, that's the technique that's been used for thousands right. of years by the Empire, you know? Ideally, ideally, sabotage the discovery. If you can't sabotage the discovery, at least try to commandeer it, say you like it, and then control the narrative of what, what the discovery is, right? Uh, which then hollows out the, the substance and just keeps the, the shell, the formula. So, would
0: you say that the document has co-opted the bill of rights as a lesser document with the removal of the inalienable rights yeah. basically yeah yeah
1: yeah it, it, it's treated now as a secondary or sub document whereas the reality of the charter of rights and freedoms is and is that it is still acknowledged in its own writings as being an appendix to the still existent 1867 bna act which is a right. real behe- ugly beast and but it's the Bill of
0: Rights is separate, so it's a document of... the Bill of
1: the Rights doesn't really fit in to the process. It, yeah, it's not really... It, it's, it's somewhat... It's standalone. Loose. It's
0: okay. standalone,
1: it's not really used as much as it should be in precedent in courts. And uh, also the concept of law within the Charter of Rights is still the language is, is wired in such a way that the rights are something given, not right. recognized as alienable, which is also different. That being said, does it mean that that you cannot as a moral lawyer use the the what is there in the charter of rights and freedoms to do battle yes you can and we've seen okay. that we've seen that used for the good uh people's rights to freedom of speech and other things have been defended successfully in courts uh based on this but it's got a lot of loopholes built into it too by design so it's right. it's, a, it's a problem document you know yeah. So I'm not going to just say all crap, yeah. okay, but at the same time like, recognize what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. So Pierre Elliott Trudeau, most damaging uh policy. And then I want to get, I think we'll 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 avoid the whole conversation around Justin because it's so big. But I'd love to finish with your thoughts on the upcoming midterm, uh midterms in the states and how that might affect both. Uh, U.S., but particularly Canadian uh, policies, if if at all.
1: Well, I, I guess with the with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, based on what I've just said, it's hard to say what the worst thing was. But I think the shifting of emphasis of overarching values of the culture as well as of the governments of the of the governing of a nation ha- were of such an order of magnitude under his. Uh, so-called leadership that damage was done of a a really deep, deep nature on on every level, um, turning us into a society of consumers that were not increasingly less and less productive over time, that were increasingly more and more indebted and didn't know how to think about correcting that. Um, We became increasingly a government that was used more and more to give money along with U.S. aid to poor countries to keep them poor so that they would increasingly be the slave labor zones, whether it's Chinese sweatshop labor to feed our Dollaramas, or whether it's African zones of extraction of minerals to feed our our needs, we became increasingly addicted as a people to a, a very evil form of global slave society. And so we became complicit in acquiescing to that transformation that was overseen by Pierre Trudeau in becoming a consumer, you know, uh, services-based society that became increasingly useless. The you the bloated works,
0: bureaucracy,
1: motor bureaucracy, and the job class and the schools became more tools around creating cogs in a machine that would then be more geared towards services. And thus, as we became more useless in our jobs, the argument that there are useless eaters that we have to sort of eliminate became harder and harder to refute. Because we put that onto ourselves, we lost our industrial technologies. Our, our engineers that built things are in their 80s are dead. You know, so it's like that's a big, deep crisis we allowed. Again, it's not it's not just the the evil guys doing it to us. It, the dance goes yeah. both ways. So that's what I would say. Under Pierre Elliott Trudeau was some of the worst stuff. As far as uh, your second part of the question with the elections coming up, um, that is one of the last best hopes the U.S. has right now to. Yes. avoid a, uh, a grave calamity, its own self-annihilation. And yeah. I think that these are people, by and large, who are not part of the political class. They're citizens like yourself who took the responsibility to begin a public life of running um, on mm-hmm. the community, on the state level, on the federal level for office because they saw that there was a, a void in leadership. The, the biggest risk is the the level of misinformation amongst the alternative minded, uh, you know, more conservative, better moral people. They still tend to believe that the, the greatest threats to their republic and freedom is evil, big, bad China and or Russia that want to ultimately just bring communism to the world and get, you know, it's like it's not that at all. So I think most of them generally are better on Russia. They they generally have most of the Trump Republicans, and Trump has spoken quite well about this, that this is nuclear war. We cannot let this happen. And so for people who look up to him as a a role model, and a lot of them do, uh, that's good. That I think they would be uh, they would be very resistant to the Biden policy of sparking Mm -hmm. World War Three around Ukraine and instead would much rather work the way Trump was moving the U.S. towards cooperative economic relationships with Russia on Arctic development and other things that would help stimulate the rebuilding of our manufacturing base. These people mm-hmm. want jobs, you know, people that's their economy.
0: Thing. Yes. Right. That's
1: that's their concern. They don't want to, they don't want to keep point billions into seeing Ukraine, 40 million Ukrainians yeah. get turned into a, a, a human hand bomb. Right. Um,
0: Absolutely. Yes. That's,
1: that's the thing. Uh, yeah. Playing
0: very close attention to the outcome as are many, um, Freedom-loving patriots, I would say. Yeah. I think you'd enjoy. I'm having Joseph Burgo on the show. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's uh, from uh, Alberta. He wanted to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party, but was not oh. allowed. And so I think right. you'll find that uh, an interesting podcast from a historical standpoint. I hope you can listen to that when I'll send it yeah. to you, but listen, it has been as always an absolute pleasure. Just remind people where they can find you and how they can subscribe to your um, to you and your, in your work. And then I'll let you go. Thank you so much. It, it just fascinating. Listen to you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for doing this and providing a platform. Sure. And I will certainly listen to this discussion you're going to have with Joseph um, yeah, the, the name didn't, it only struck me as you were describing him. Like, okay. That was him.
0: Uh,
1: I will definitely cue into that. That's good. Yeah. Um, the, for people who would like to look more into some of the research that I was just sharing, uh, over today's discussion, the best thing would be to, to buy my books. I mean, there's a lot of material heavily footnoted, a lot of original research and um, that they can get easily on canadianpatriot.org. Um, easy to find, buy my books. I'm also, I've team, teamed up with my wife and a, and a filmmaker um, named Jason Dahl, an extraordinary extraordinarily talented Ottawa-based filmmaker. We've been making documentaries, little videos, five to, to 35 minutes long. Wow. Um, as part of, yeah, we've just begun <laughs> that. If people want to f- follow that, that's easy to find on our website. Uh, if they want to help with the donation towards... These videos are about a thousand dollars a piece, uh, time and energy. So we've got a little GoFundMe, or you know, you could do a Patreon support or whatever. Oh, great! Really? Um, yeah, and otherwise, um, that's a lot of homework, right there. I'll just stop with that stuff. If you, oh. if you guys do that, the yeah. well. audience does that, it'll be good.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I, I that I, there's so much to take in. I always listen to our podcast again because there's so much information. It's like dense. So thank you so much, Matthew. Stay well. Appreciate the work of you and your wife. And we'll definitely, hopefully, speak again. And I'll uh, and have a great week. Yes, you too. All right, bye.